we're going to have our Bible readings in a few moments, but just before we do that, I'd like to sort of set them in context. And uh, I was struck by how just now we prayed that line of the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come. And we've come to the last of, of our series on God's Kingdom and how God's king, what God's Kingdom is all about. We've seen how that kingdom is not a geographical kingdom like the United Kingdom, but it's God reigning in our hearts. God who rules over all creation uh, wants to do that, just that, to reign in our hearts and in his world. And his reign, his rule, is obviously going to impact individuals as we follow him closely. But it's also going to encompass this, the life of this church. And we've already prayed more than once that God's kingdom will go forward in the choice of our next youth and children's worker. And uh, more than that, we remember that God is, as king, he is over history. History is his story. Um, And so we're thinking about how God rules over the nations of the world. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how that, what that kingdom looks like in practice. So we looked at hope. God's kingdom brings hope. And there's no need to worry when God is reigning in our lives. And we've looked at the differences and the changes that God's rule will have in our hearts. And we've also considered some of Jesus' parables and how they describe in picture language, the way that God's kingdom grows, imperceptibly sometimes. And then we thought about the kingdom in the battle against temptation and evil. We don't live in a world that is entirely God's world. Uh, There are evil forces both outside us and within us. And then last week we thought about how God's kingdom doesn't allow us to take the easy route. Jesus said... There is a broad way and a narrow way. And he, he encouraged us to choose the narrow way because that led to life. And in all those ways, we've been thinking about how God's kingdom works in the here and now. But our readings today are going to take it a bit further. They're going to look at the future aspect of God's kingdom. You see, we've already seen the, the fact that God is at work. There is an already aspect to the reign of God in our world. But the New Testament also suggests that alongside the already, there is a not yet. Here's some words from John's letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, he writes, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And so we're not there yet as regards God's kingdom. We're waiting for the fulfilment of that kingdom in our world. And so we come to our readings. In both, we hear Jesus teaching his disciples about the end times, the future, and what God's kingdom will look like. Christine and Diane are going to read for us. Our first reading is Matthew chapter 24, 
verses 36 to 44, and can be found on page 994 of your pew Bibles. Matthew 24, starting at verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, and can be found on page 994 of the Pew Bibles. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm not sure what what you made of those readings, but I hope you'll agree that whatever they may be about, the the now aspect of God's kingdom um, is uh, not so much obvious, it's not very obvious in that reading, but it's more about the not yet. Last week, when Debbie preached, she started her, she told us that uh, as she started her sermon preparation, she soon got to a verse that said this, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And she confessed that when she read those words, she wished she was preaching about something else. Um, I think I had a similar experience when I opened up the passages that I was preaching on today. So as we sit, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to understand more of your plan for this world and for your love for each one of us. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And part of the reason for the difficulty we find with those passages is is because of the, the settings. The settings are different. There's a completely different culture going on behind the scenes. And so, for example, if you take that parable that we had read, our second reading, the questions uh, arise in our hearts. Who exactly are the virgins? Are they the equivalent of our bridesmaids? Um, Have any of you ever been to a wedding with ten bridesmaids? Nikki and I, when we got married, we just had two bridesmaids. Although I have to confess that when our daughter got married last year, there were eight bridesmaids. She managed to ask all eight of them before she told us that she was going to do that. Or maybe the virgins weren't bridesmaids, but they were servants of the bridegroom. Or possibly just a gathering of friends, teenage friends and neighbours. And why is the bridegroom delayed? It's not clear. Was he haggling over the size of the diary that he was going to have to pay for his bride? You see, a bride didn't come free in those days and could cost quite a lot. Or is he playing a little joke on his bride to keep her guessing just when the show is going to begin? We just don't know the background. And another difference that can be confusing to us is is that for us these days, weddings last just one day. But in those days, before the honeymoon had become an established thing, they would often last a week or even two weeks. Very long, drawn-out affairs, which make our weddings seem rather tepid affairs these days. And it seems that what's happened is that the bridegroom has gone over to the bride's house to collect her and take her back to his house for for the feast. But he's taken so long over his bartering, or whatever else he's doing, that the bridesmaids fall asleep. And then eventually they all go back to the bridegroom's house. Well, five of the bridesmaids go back to the bridegroom's house and the foolish girls are left behind trying to find oil to light their torch lamps. The trouble is that once the bridegroom arrives home with the five wise girls, the door is shut and the foolish ones are locked out, and they're going to miss the whole week's worth of festivities, not just one evening. And getting to grips with all these strange details can be a bit of a distraction for us, but it wouldn't have been a distraction for those who are listening to this parable for the first time, because they would have been familiar with the culture. With all the details, no doubt it was typical of any Middle Eastern wedding of the time. We tend to get hung up on details like, What does the oil in the story represent? When in fact, that's, in my view, irrelevant. 
Nor are we meant to dwell on the lack of generosity shown by the five wise bridesmaids who refused to give any oil to the other five. In fact, as I'm sure you know, parables are not meant to be read as if they're allegories where each detail corresponds to something. What matters is the broad sweep of the parable. So what is the broad sweep of this parable? I think we can sum it up in two parts, two phrases. The first one I'm going to call the God who surprises and the second one, the God who divides. So first of all, the God who surprises. And verse 1 of the parable goes like this. At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And before we think about the parable itself, I think we need to ask a question about those first words. At that time, at what time is Jesus talking about? And that's why I asked for a reading before the parable, a bit from chapter 24. Because these two chapters, 24 and 25, go together. They belong together. They seem to be a collection of Jesus' teaching um, about the future. A future which includes the destruction of Jerusalem, but also the return of Jesus Christ at the end of history. And so when Jesus begins these, uh, this parable with those words, at that time, what he's saying is that this story of the bridesmaids refers to the same thing, some of the same things that he was talking about in chapter 24. We only read a tiny part of that chapter, just, just eight or nine verses, and it's, it's not an easy chapter to understand. But I wonder if you noticed the last verse, verse 44 of chapter 24. The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Christ's return will be unpredictable. Now, four years ago, Back in May 2011, I spent two weeks in America. While I was away, I kept a little diary, which is not something I normally do. And on Saturday, May the 21st, I wrote this. At 6 p.m. today is the time that Jesus will return, according to Harold Camping, the American Christian radio broadcaster. In the early afternoon... I went to the Baptist Church Spring Fair. And while I was there, I spoke to the pastor, Mark Blair, about the rapture, as Camping calls it. He laughed and said he was going to preach about it the following day. And sure enough, nothing happened. Camping was wrong. But he wasn't only mistaken in his prediction, he was also mistaken in even, even trying to make a prediction. Jesus said that he would return at a time that we do not expect. In fact, I think there's another reason, yet another reason, why camping and people like him are unhelpful in what they say. Their ridiculous efforts to predict exactly when the end of the world is going to happen make other people sceptical about the whole idea that Christ is coming back and they end up thinking that it's just a strange Christian doctrine that has no relevance at all to their lives. And yet Jesus is clear. He will come at a time that we don't expect. He's the God of surprises, and his return will surprise us all. 
And for some, it will be a nice surprise. But for others, that will not be the case. And the only way to be ready for that day is to be ready every day. Someone once asked John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, what he would do if he knew that the Lord would return at the same time the following day. He said more or less this, I would go to bed and go to sleep. I would wake up in the morning and continue with my work, for I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed. In other words, he'd look at his diary and carry on as normal. The words of a man who was ready. I wonder if we think that way. Much more common is the thought that goes like this. I hope he doesn't come before I retire. (laughs) Or before I get married. Or before my baby is born. This is what Jesus said in the parable, chapter 25, verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. He will surprise us. And are we ready? So we've seen that he's a God of surprises, but the parable also shows us that he is the God who divides. That reading that I just read from the parable goes on like this. While they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were already who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. That unexpected coming of the Lord, who is the bridegroom, made a separation, a divide between them. This is made quite clear in these two chapters in Matthew that we've been thinking about today. In that first reading from chapter 24, it said this, Two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. And here in our chapter, we've got these ten bridesmaids. Five enjoy the feast and five are shut out. And later on in the same chapter, chapter 25, we have the parable of the sheep and the goats. I'm sure you know these solemn words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The sheep on his right are the righteous And they are promised eternal life with Christ. But to the goats on the left, he says, depart from me, you evildoers. I don't actually enjoy the parable of the sheep and the goats very much, with those solemn words about the way that we live our lives and the consequences of being an evildoer. 
and nor did my college chaplain when I was at university. I remember hearing that passage read in the chapel with the nasty bits left out. But as we've seen in these two chapters, it's a repeated message. We can't airbrush them out. Nevertheless, it leaves us with a huge question. How can a loving God judge people and divide them into two groups? Those who go in to enjoy the feast and those who are shut out. And that's a question that upsets and angers both Christians and non-Christians alike. How can we believe in a God of love who welcomes some and not others? And yet I believe it's actually something that is good news. Yes, good news. And I've got two reasons for that. Both of them follow from thinking about what sort of a world it would be if God didn't judge people. I need to explain that, I think. Take the news this week, for example. It's been full of terrible stories of evil and injustice. The Becky Watts murder the killing of little Aisha Ali, the Oxfordshire abuse scandal. And then about a week ago, we were told that Jihadi John, who was involved in some of the terrible beheadings in Syria, was really Mohammed Mwazi from London. David Cameron has made a call that he should be brought back to this country to face justice. The families of some of those killed go further and say that only his death will bring them any sense of closure. There is within us, I believe, a deeply held sense of right and wrong, and a strong desire that justice should be done. And as Christians, we believe that we're made in the image of God, and that God, therefore, also has a strong sense of justice. Years ago, a Christian writer called Jim Packer wrote a groundbreaking book called Knowing God. And here's what he said about God as our judge. Why then do people fight shy of the thought of God as a judge? Why do they feel the thought to be unworthy of him? The truth is that part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and Stalins, and his own saints, be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God and show moral indifference. Not to judge the world would be like that. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. Our God is not a God of moral indifference. So the first bit of good news is that God takes evil and injustice seriously. It's not truly loving to ignore these things. So a loving God must also be a just God. The second bit of good news can be found in what's perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, John 
God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I wonder if you know how that verse continues into verse 17. It goes like this. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, the second bit of good news is that we have a God who's not content just with judging, with simply punishing evil and injustice. His justice is tempered with love and mercy. He sent his son so that anyone who, that all that anyone has to do is to turn to him, believe in him, and receive his forgiveness. No condemnation, no exclusion, and welcomed into the wedding feast. I'd like to close with a little uh, reading, anonymous reading. It's called The Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. Some groups near the front were talking heatedly. Can, judge, can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a young man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was an abused schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. So each of these groups put forward their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most, In the centre of this vast plain, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born as a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Give him a work that's so difficult even his family will think that he's out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. And let him be tortured. Finally, let him see what it is to be truly alone. Then let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader pronounced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. Amen.